we're going to be on page uh, 1203 of the uh, Bibles, which are underneath the chairs, in Hebrews 4. Shall we uh, pray before I begin? Lord God, we uh, thank you uh, for your word, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Lord, we uh, praise you that that is being found to be true in so many of our lives. Lord, I pray that it may be true for all of us here this evening as we uh, listen to your word preached and read it on the page for ourselves. Lord, may you speak to us. May you penetrate dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. As you do so, Lord, through your word, change us, make us new. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Well, um, some things come and go, don't they? Uh, Like flared trousers and uh, brown cars. I was thinking about brown cars. In the 1980s, uh, brown cars were very popular. We would have been driving around in uh, russet brown Austin Allegro's and Harvest Gold NGBs, which uh, was beige to you and me. And um, they're making a comeback. Audi and BMW now sell uh, very nice brown cars uh, this year. Uh, Curates, they come and go. Uh, And yesterday I was playing with Lucas, my youngest, four years old. And we were playing with that. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember it from my childhood. There's this funny plastic stuff that comes in the tube. And you take a little ball of this plastic stuff and you stick it on the end of a plastic tube and then you blow into it and you can make a big balloon. And it sort of blows up into a big balloon. And then it's sticky, so it sticks to your hand and it sticks to the table and it sticks to other balloons that you make and things like that. So that's coming back. So that came back because I bought that this year. And I remember playing with that when I was a boy. And uh, like any balloon, if you squeeze one end of it, then the other end pops out and seems to expand bigger than you can ever possibly imagine it to be. And Christianity is like that proverbial balloon, isn't it? I mean, you stamp on it over here, and it just inflates out in a different direction. And many people, through the ages, from uh, Nero, that's the emperor, not the coffee bar, to Dawkins, have tried to pop Christianity's balloon, but nobody has succeeded. It brings to mind that uh, famous apocryphal graffiti uh, on the wall, God is dead, Nietzsche. And then somebody adds underneath, Nietzsche is dead. God. <laughs> Christianity is still the world's largest religion. And in significant parts of the world, it is still growing and very fast. Here in the West, we see that the balloon is being trodden on, but it's inflating out in different directions in China and Africa and South America. Just as in the past, in the time of Paul, it was trodden on in Jerusalem and inflated out throughout the Gentile world. And although it's true that In the past, Christianity has been guilty of all kinds of things, all kinds of harmful things. Unlike Islam today, Christianity doesn't progress through political movements and aggressive colonization. And philosophy, science, sociology, even David Cameron, the new atheist, they've all been trying to kill off Christianity in any meaningful public form. And yet Christianity goes on expanding. And why does it go on expanding? Because people go on believing Verse 1 of chapter 4 of Hebrews. Verse 1 says, The promise of entering his rest still stands. You see, when I make a promise to you, I may or may not come through. 
you'd be right to a little be a little bit sceptical. So if it had been me saying to Martin, uh, just give me a call, uh, I might have been avoiding the phone that week. Now, if Alan had made a promise to you, then he's much more likely to fulfill that promise because he's got the kind of mind that will remember what he said and will ensure that the promise is delivered. But when the promise comes from God, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the whole world, then you can be certain that God is going to come through, isn't he? That's why the, hope in, uh, the word hope in Christianity is never, kind, never the kind of sort of vague possibility that Mark might actually remember what he said. But the sure and certain hope that God will deliver. God will keep his promise, come what may. So we don't ask in the Bible whether you might, God, possibly remember the promise you made sometime. No, we simply ask him when. Not if, but when. And the Psalms are full of people who are asking that question, aren't they? When? When, O oh Lord? When are you going to deliver us? But at the same time, the psalmists are always convinced, aren't they, that God is good and great and will fulfill his word. And much of that is to do with the very promise that we're considering here in verse 1. So what's it all about? Well, if you read on in verse 1, you see the promise of entering his rest still stands. So we can see that the promise is about entering God's rest. But what does that mean? Well, it's a concept that can be found throughout the pages of the Bible. I mean, here we are on page number 1203. And our writer in verse 4 says, Somewhere, he says, somewhere he, that's God, has spoken about the seventh day in these words. And then he quotes, And on the seventh day God rested from all his work. Well, I'm not very good at remembering where quotes are in the Bible, but even I know that one, and it's Genesis chapter 2, and verse 2. And that's the first time that God's rest is mentioned in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 says, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. In effect, it's the climax of creation. You see, there's no eighth day in the creation account, is there? So God didn't spend the evening of the seventh day uh, ironing his shirt and sorting out his briefcase, getting work ready for work in the, the following Monday morning. The second part of verse 3 says that God's work has been finished since the creation of the world. So in a very real sense, God's work of creation is done. But does that mean that he takes to his armchair and picks up a pipe to have a smoke? No for many reasons, but because God's rest is not inactive. In fact, in John 5, in verse 17, Jesus tells us that his Father is always at work to this very day, just as he, Jesus, is too, working. So what was God doing on his kind of ongoing active day of rest? Well, the Genesis account tells us, doesn't it? It turns out and perhaps this is some bad news for uh, us introverts around here, that God is an extrovert. He, likes, he delights to spend his day off with people. In this case, Adam and Eve. And that, in a sense, is what God's rest is all about. Because he finds his rest in relationship with us. As we find, in fact, our rest in relationship with him. Do you get that? You know, you probably know, don't you, how there are certain people you can rest with. Maybe if you're married, it's your wife or your husband. 
or perhaps it's your best friend who you've known for many, many years. And you don't have to try to pretend in front of them, do you? They just know you. You don't have to try to impress them because they know your weaknesses and they know your strengths as well and they love you anyway. They're the sort of people you can rest with. And at the end of the day, the Bible teaches us that God created this world with all its beauty and its capacity for productivity simply in order to spend time with humanity. That's you and me. And if you think about it, going back to John chapter 5 and 17 for a second, Jesus says, my father is always at his work to this very day, just as I am working. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because Jesus was working throughout his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension precisely in order to restore our relationship with God. They were both working, father and son were both working for exactly the same aim in order to restore that relationship with God. And we can extrapolate from there that the Holy Spirit does exactly the same thing. So he works now in our lives to restore our relationship with God so it, becomes growing, it grows deeper and stronger. Uh, my son Lucas sometimes comes home from school and tells us, nobody wants to play with me at lunchtime. It's the sort of thing that kind of breaks your heart if you're a parent, thinking of your son in a playground with nobody to play with. But sometimes we ask that same question, don't we? As adults, why doesn't anybody want to play with me? Who are we? What, are, what is our worth? Are we attractive enough? And yet the Bible answers all of those questions. It says we're the sort of people that God wants to share paradise with in true, intimate relationship. The problem, though, of course, was that uh, us people, uh, for us people enjoying God's presence in a beautiful place, wasn't quite good enough uh, for our ancestors. We wanted to rule in that garden, even though we knew that it was a place where God ruled. And in our rebellion, we forfeited the pleasure of that direct relationship with God in, in Eden, Paradise, as we know, was lost. And yet in some way, and I believe this is true for all of us, whether we're believers or not believers, we haven't completely lost our memory of that past. You could say that Eden remains in our hearts. So our heart seeks transcendence. Search, search for wisdom. Yearn for justice, need hope. Love beauty, sense our own darkness. Are pulled by evil, repulsed by death an acheful reassurance of a satisfactory uh, story to make sense of our existence here on earth. And in a sense, what we're saying when we think those say things or say those things is, is we're trying to find our way back to Eden. We're trying to find our way back to that wonderful, close, intimate relationship of rest uh, for which we were created in the beginning. John Calvin, uh, the great theologian, said, the highest happiness of man is to be united to his God. And the ancient Israelites knew that. You see, they experienced uh, two pointers towards God's rest. Firstly, they were given the Sabbath itself, a special day of rest every week, enforced rest, as it were. But it was also a day to spend in relationship with God as they understood uh, that relationship. And secondly, Abraham was promised the land of Canaan, wasn't he? A land of rest where they would be able to settle down, plant crops and multiply 
in peace. But in fact, those two things weren't the real deal. The Old Testament Sabbath and the land only pointed them forward to a greater rest which was still to come. We know that because here in our passage, our writer to the Hebrews repeatedly takes us back to Psalm 95, where God reminds his people uh, about that generation of Moses, who did not enter his rest. We remember those from Numbers, don't we? And he warns the generation he's writing to, that in Psalm 95, that generation, that he warns that generation not to make the same mistake. So in verse 7 of our passage, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, quoting Psalm 95. The point being that Psalm 95 was written in the time of David, hundreds of years after Joshua had led them into the promised land and into that God's rest. See, the rest of the Sabbath and the rest of the land were pointing forward to something better. Even though they'd lived there for centuries, they'd still not fulfilled or achieved fully God's rest in that land. And to return to that old theme of Hebrews that we've been on before, Hebrews promises us a better bit of butter on our knife. And what is that better bit of butter? You had to bit of, better bit of butter. Well, Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. And what is it? Not that I shall give you salvation, not that I shall give you vindication, or, sh- or I shall give you his physical healing but I will give you rest. You see, the rest which we enjoy when we're in right relationship with God once more. Now, I don't think he used that word rest by accident. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Find gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble. It's a relationship. A relationship that will give you God's rest. It reminds me of the story of Mary and Martha in in Luke. Do you remember that? Mary uh, was uh, sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. Martha was running around the house, making all the preparations, clearing up, preparing the meal, making sure that all their guests were welcome. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me out. Jesus answers Martha, You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. What had Mary chosen? She had chosen to rest with Jesus, in relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says, that's the better way. You see, Martha was busy, so hard at work. Mary chose rest, and it was the right thing to do. So says Hebrews, God's promise still stands. The invitation of Jesus is still open. Come to me and I will give you rest. But Hebrews goes on. It says we must be careful not to miss out. So verse 1 again, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. It's a warning, isn't it? The writer reminds us what we already know from the book of Numbers, that the people of Moses' generation had heard the message, but were far too busy looking back at the melons that they'd had in Egypt to combine the message they were hearing with faith. That's in verse 2. The message, it says, they heard was of no value to them because they did not combine it with faith. 
And we know, don't we, that because of that, they were not permitted to enter God's rest in the promised land of Canaan. They preferred the desert to Canaan. Only two people out of that generation, Joshua and Caleb, the two spies who went to the land and came back and said, we can conquer this land, despite the giants. We can conquer this land, and we can enter its rest. All of the others were barred because of the lack of their faith. But verse 6 says, those who formerly had the gospel preached to them did not go in because of their disobedience. So which is it, I wonder, a lack of faith or disobedience which causes them to be excluded from God's rest? Well, these days, our, our, our idea of faith sometimes is a bit wishy-washy, isn't it? I mean, everyone talks about faith or spirituality in different contexts as though it's something you've either got or you haven't. Oh, they're a really spiritual person, we say. And somebody said uh, uh, that, you know, it's compared faith to some sort of congenital abnormality. I mean, my, my mum was born with seven toes on one foot. Other people were uh, born with much more serious, uh, deformed limbs and things like that. Well, they could say of me, there's Mark. He was born gullible. That's why his faith, you know, he has faith. He was just born that bad. But you see, real faith, biblical faith, requires you to investigate the facts. And if you think they are true, then you need to put life and soul behind them and obey the consequences. I remember when I was young, a boy, I, I was walking past uh, Coleman Road Library out on the Coleman Road, and uh, I think I'm right in saying, but there was a, an air raid siren installed on the roof of the library. And for some reason, I don't know why, but it was sounding when we were walking past, this air raid siren. So I asked my mum what it was, of course, and she said, well, she told me what it was. And we heard that air raid siren, you couldn't miss it. It was incredibly loud. But we didn't believe it. We didn't believe the message it was giving us because we couldn't understand why uh, the West End of Norwich was about to be bombed in the 1970s. I mean, I mean, it was the 1970s. That's why I didn't believe it. If it had been the 1940s and we'd heard the same siren going off on the roof of Coleman Road Library, then I think we would have believed it, wouldn't we? And we would have headed for the nearest shelter. We'd taken some action. And that's what we need to do with faith. We need to hear it. We need to hear the message. We need to believe what it's saying. And we need to take action. We need to obey it in order to enter God's rest. So it's both lack of faith and lack of obedience that can prevent us from entering God's rest. So when we hear Jesus say, come to me, we can hear it mainly as an invitation, can't we? Something we can either take or leave, some, like an invitation to a party. Um, I, you know, we could say, mm, a party on Saturday night? Well, I'm not sure, you know, there's something good on the telly. I, I, I read something in the newspaper coming home on the train on Friday about Kate Moss, the model. You know, I'm, not, I'm sure she's been invited to a few parties in her time, but she was saying in the paper that she actually prefers to stay at home and watch the telly in the Cotswolds, since she's moved to Cotswolds with her daughter. She's much happier staying at home. Well, we need to hear it for ourselves. Not as an invitation, but we need to hear it as something that demands us to look at the evidence. Do we believe that Jesus can give us rest? Are we going to obey his call to come to him? 
In Hebrews, we find that God's promise is delivered. In verse 3, the writer says, Now we who have believed enter, that's present tense, that rest. If we believed, we've entered that rest. Once we put our faith and obedience in Jesus, we have entered the rest of relationship with him. And I think that's my experience, and that's the experience of many of us here tonight. We have entered his rest. But the message is still, don't miss out. We don't want to be like Moses' generation and being told that we cannot enter the promised land. But we could miss out if you don't come to Jesus. Even now, even now if we have come to Jesus and we know that rest, we don't still have the full fulfilment. It's kind of now and not yet situation. We've got it, we've entered that rest and yet Hebrews tells us there's so much more to come. So verse 11, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the example of disobedience. You see, we've already entered God's rest in Jesus. We experience that through his spirit and sharing in Christian community. And, and many of us find that in our walk with Jesus in our, in our quiet times as we read and read the Bible and pray or as we acknowledge his presence during the, in the midst of a busy day at work. And yet we know that that experience is not yet perfect. We know that it's still only a foretaste of something yet to come. We know that our relationship with God can still be spoiled through our disobedience and sin. And that's why I think we have verses 12 and 13 here. You see, here the author reminds us that the Bible, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is a living word for a living relationship. It's a living word for a living relationship. You see, at first sight, these words are just the sort of words that evangelicals love, aren't they? The word of God is like a living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And yet you look a little bit closer and you actually find that the imagery is from a battlefield or even a butcher's shop. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a living word for a living relationship. But close relationship is not always uh, very comfortable, is it? Like this imagery. We all know that, we, uh, that it's our closest friends who can challenge us most strongly sometimes, don't we? And here in this book, The, Pro- the Problem of Pain, which I've been reading for the series on Job in the morning, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, describes our relationship with God a bit like in a, in a chapter that he admit, himself admits he could get into a lot of trouble for. He compares our relationship as a man uh, who loves his dog. And then he goes on to uh, compare the relationship between God and us as uh, the relationship between a man uh, loves and how a man loves his wife. And he says this, he says, The church of the Lord's bride is the Lord's bride, whom he so loves that in her no spot or wrinkle is endurable. For the truth which this analogy serves to emphasize is that love in its own nature demands the perfecting of the beloveds. You see, just as a man trains his dog to behave and to obey his word and to not run out into the road, into the traffic, and all those other things we have to teach dogs. Uh, God, and just as a, as a man who truly loves his wife, will have an opinion about how she behaves or what she says and what she does. God has an opinion about what we say, what we, ha- what we do, and what we uh, say. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this, he says, when Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that he has some disinterested concern for our welfare, 
But that in awful and surprising truth, we are the objects of his love. You asked for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit you so likely invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is is present. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds. Persistent as the artist's love for his work, and despotic as a man's love for a dog, provident and venerable as a father's love for a child, jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. How this should be, I do not know. It passes reason to explain why any creatures, not to say creatures such as we, should have a value so prodigious in their creator's eyes. Do you see, the love is not without cost. The love is so close, the love is so intimate, that he cannot leave us as we are. He has to make us to be without spot, wrinkle or blemish. You remember there, back in the garden, Adam and Eve had sinned. What did they do? They tried to cover themselves before they were discovered by God. But verse 13 here in Hebrews leaves no room for fig leaves. It says nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We often try to hide from God, don't we? We think by a competent pretending and putting on a good face we can escape his attentions. We think that somehow we can distract God away from the bad things we do by doing some good things in other ways. This passage says that the Bible, the Word of God, reveals the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. It reminds me of a story of a, a, an Australian judge called Marcus Ainfield. He was a very famous judge in Australia. Uh, he was a, a Queen's Counsel. He was a, he'd been nominated Australian Living Treasure in 1997. He received a, a Peace Award from the United Nations in 2002. He was the president of their uh, Human Rights and Equal Opportunities Commission. And this very famous judge, a man of uh, great standing and stature, was caught by a speed camera in 2006, driving at six miles per hour over the limits through Sydney. As a result, he was issued with a fine of $36 and a few points on his license. The problem is that the judge in question was... uh, uh, a proud man who already had a few points on his license and he didn't really want to become the sort of man who was driven around by somebody else. So he claimed that he had lent the car to an American friend of his, a, a, a person called Professor Teresa Brennan. And the magistrates believed him and they let him free. Unfortunately, a journalist found out that Teresa Brennan uh, was an actual figure, a true person, but unfortunately she had died three years before the time she was due, supposed to be driving the judge's car through Sydney. At this point, of course, the judge could have confessed and he could have saved uh, something of his reputation and uh, certainly saved his freedom. Unfortunately, instead of that, he at first uh, tried to claim that it was a different uh, Teresa Brennan because obviously there's so many Teresa Brennans in the world. And then he tried to claim that actually on that day he was driving his mother's car. His mother, aged 94, 
Um, couldn't really remember whether we'd been driving the Toyota Corolla that he, uh, she, she had in the garage um, that day, but that's what he claimed he was driving, and not at the wheel of his silver Lexus, which was caught on camera. Unfortunately, another journalist found that there was a closed-circuit television footage that proved that his mother's Toyota Corolla had not moved from the garage during the course of the whole day. And that man's life stood in ruins. Instead of confessing, instead of paying up $36 to have the fine, instead of confessing when he was first found out, he received a jail term of a minimum of two years. The end of a career, the end of a reputation. Of course, it could only happen in Australia, couldn't it? I mean, if this story reminds you of a certain cabinet minister in the UK, then I'm sure that would just be a pure coincidence. But what foolish naivety, isn't it? Why did he ever think that he could get away with it? Why do we ever think that we can get away with our own pretense, our own hypocrisy in our lives, when nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight? Why don't we just submit ourselves to God's words? It's a living word for a living relationship. You see, the Bible will tell us about God's holiness that exposes our sin. It tells us about God's wrath that opposes our sin. It tells us also about God's love that deals with our sin. So the promise still stands. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and enjoy my rest. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and thank you that you created this world and everything in it, that you created each one of us here to enjoy a relationship with you, a perfect, intense, transforming relationship that we can only really imagine and have a foretaste of now. Lord, we look forward to that time when we will have a perfect relationship with you in heaven, when nothing can get in the way between us and you. Lord, we pray, Lord, that as we hear your call to come to you for rest, whether we've been a Christian for many years or whether we've come for the first time tonight and maybe have questions about who God is, Lord, may we make that step towards you. May we examine that part of ourselves which says, yes, I want to enjoy that rest. Yes, I want to enjoy that relationship with you, Lord. If you are truly the creator of this world, if you are truly the God who sent your own son to die and rise again for us so that we might be saved, that we might enter this new relationship, then yes, God, I want to know you. Yes, God, I want to be in relationship with you. Whatever that means for my life, whatever that means in terms of what I might have to give up, whatever that means in terms of what I might have to start doing, Lord, help us to come to you and enjoy your rest. In the name of Christ. Amen.